Chapter the Thirtieth, Book the Second of Little Dorrit, read for LibriVox.org by Ellis Christoph. Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens, Book the Second, Chapter the Thirtieth. Closing in, Part One. The last day of the appointed week touched the bars of the Marshall Sea Gate, black all night, since the gate had clashed upon Little Dorrit. Its iron stripes were turned by the early glowing sun into stripes of gold. Far aslant across the city, over its jumbled roofs, and through the open tracery of its church towers, struck the long bright rays, bars of the prison of this lower world. Throughout the day the old house within the gateway remained untroubled by any visitors. But when the sun was low, three men turned in at the gateway, and made for the dilapidated house. Rigor was the first, and walked by himself smoking. Mr. Baptist was the second, and jogged close after him, looking at no other object. Mr. Panks was the third, and carried his hat under his arm for the liberation of his restive hair, the weather being extremely hot. They all came together at the doorsteps. "'You pair of madmen!' said Rigor, facing about, don't go yet. We don't mean to, said Mr. Panks. Giving him a dark glance in acknowledgment of his answer, Rigaud knocked loudly. He had charged himself with drink for the playing out of his game and was impatient to begin. He had hardly finished one long resounding knock when he turned to the knocker again and began another. That was not yet finished when Jeremiah Flintwinch opened the door and they all clanked into the stone hall. Rigaud, thrusting Mr. Flintwinch aside, proceeded straight upstairs. His two attendants followed him, Mr. Flintwinch followed them, and they all came trooping into Mrs. Clennam's quiet room. It was in its usual state, except that one of the windows was wide open, and Avery sat on its old-fashioned window-seat, mending a stocking. The usual articles were on the little table. The usual deadened fire was in the grate. The bed had its usual pall upon it, and the mistress of all sat on her black beer-like sofa, propped up by her black angular bolster that was like the headman's block. Yet there was a nameless air of preparation in the room, as if it were strung up for an occasion. From what the room derived it, every one of its small variety of objects being in the fixed spot it had occupied for years, no one could have said without looking attentively at its mistress and that too, with a previous knowledge of her face. Although her unchanging black dress was in every plait precisely as of old, and her unchanging attitude was rigidly preserved, a very slight additional setting of her features and contraction of her gloomy forehead was so powerfully marked that it marked everything about her. "'Who are these?' she said wonderingly, as the two attendants entered. "'What do these people want here?' "'Who are these, dear madame, is it?' returned Rigaud. "'Faith, they are friends of your son, the prisoner. "'And what do they want here, is it?' "'Death, madame, I don't know. "'You will do well to ask them.' "'You know you told us at the door not to go yet,' said Panks. "'And you know you told me at the door you didn't mean to go,' retorted Rigaud. "'In a word, madame,' Permit me to present two spies of the prisoners, madmen, but spies. If you wish them to remain here during our little conversation, say the word. 
It is nothing to me. Why should I wish them to remain here? said Mrs. Clennam. What have I to do with them? Then, dearest madame, said Rigaud, throwing himself into an armchair so heavily that the old room trembled, you will do well to dismiss them. It is your affair. They are not my spies, not my rascals. Hark! You panks, said Mrs. Clennam, bending her brows upon him angrily. You Casby's clerk, attend to your employer's business and your own. Go, and take that other man with you. Thank you, ma'am, returned Mr. Panks. I am glad to say I see no objection to our both retiring. We have done all we undertook to do for Mr. Clennam. His constant anxiety has been, and it grew worse upon him when he became a prisoner, that this agreeable gentleman should be brought back here to the place from which he slipped away. Here he is, brought back, and I will say, added Mr. Panks, to his ill-looking face, that in my opinion the world would be no worse for his slipping out of it altogether. Your opinion is not asked, answered Mrs. Clennam. Go. I am sorry not to leave you in better company, ma'am, said Panks, and sorry too that Mr. Clennam can't be present. It's my fault, that is. You mean his own, she returned. No, I mean mine, ma'am, said Panks, for it was my misfortune to lead him into a ruinous investment. Mr. Panks still clung to that word, and never said speculation. Though I can prove by figures, added Mr. Panks with an anxious countenance, that it ought to have been a good investment. I have gone over it since it failed every day of my life, and it comes out, regarded as a question of figures, triumphant. The present is not a time or place, Mr. Panks pursued, with a longing glance into his head, where he kept his calculations, for entering upon the figures, but the figures are not to be disputed. Mr. Clennam ought to have been at this moment in his carriage and pair, and I ought to have been worth from three to five thousand pounds. Mr. Panks put his hair erect with a general aspect of confidence that could hardly have been surpassed if he had had the amount in his pocket. These incontrovertible figures had been the occupation of every moment of his leisure since he had lost his money and were destined to afford him consolation to the end of his days. However, said Mr. Panks, enough of that. Altro, old boy, you have seen the figures and you know how they come out. Mr. Baptist, who had not the slightest arithmetical power of compensating himself in this way, nodded with a fine display of bright teeth, at whom Mr. Flintwinch had been looking, and to whom he then said, "'Oh, it's you, is it? I thought I remembered your face, but I wasn't certain till I saw your teeth. Ah, yes, to be sure. It was this officious refugee,' said Jeremiah to Mrs. Clennam, who came knocking at the door on the night when Arthur and Chatterbox were here, and who asked me a whole catechism of questions about Mr. Blandois. It is true, Mr. Baptist cheerfully admitted, and behold him, padrone, I have found him consequentementally. I shouldn't have objected, returned Mr. Flintwinch, to your having broken your neck consequentementally. And now, said Mr. Panks, whose eye had often stealthily wandered to the window-seat, and the stocking that was being mended there, I've only one other word to say before I go. If Mr. Clennam was here, but unfortunately, though he has so far got the better of this fine gentleman as to return him to this place against his will, he is ill and in prison, ill and in prison, poor fellow, if he was here. 
said Mr. Pangs, taking one step aside towards the window seat, and laying his right hand upon the stocking. He would say, Affery, tell your dreams. Mr. Pangs held up his right forefinger between his nose and the stocking with a ghostly air of warning, turned, steamed out and towed Mr. Baptist after him. The house door was heard to close upon them, their steps were heard passing over the dull pavement of the echoing courtyard, and still nobody had added a word. Mrs. Clennam and Jeremiah had exchanged a look, and had then looked, and looked still, at Affery, who sat mending the stocking with great assiduity. Calm, said Mr. Flintwinch at length, screwing himself a curve or two in the direction of the window seat, and rubbing the palms of his hands on his coat tail, as if he were preparing them to do something. Whatever has to be said among us had better be begun to be said without more loss of time. So, Affery, my woman, take yourself away. In a moment Affery had thrown the stocking down, started up, caught hold of the window-sill with her right hand, lodged herself upon the window-seat with her right knee, and was flourishing her left hand beating expected assailants off. No, I won't, Jeremiah. No, I won't. No, I won't. I won't go. I'll stay here. I'll hear all I don't know, and say all I know. I will at last, if I die for it. I will, I will, I will, I will. Mr. Flintwinch, stiffening with indignation and amazement, moistened the fingers of one hand at his lips, softly described a circle with them in the palm of the other hand, and continued with a menacing grin to screw himself in the direction of his wife, gasping some remarks as he advanced, of which, in his choking anger, only the words, Such a doze, were audible. Not a bit nearer, Jeremiah, cried Affery, never ceasing to beat the air. Don't come a bit nearer to me, or I'll rouse the neighbourhood. I throw myself out of window. I'll scream fire and murder. I'll wake the dead. Stop where you are, or I'll make shrieks enough to wake the dead. The determined voice of Mrs. Clennam echoed, Stop! Jeremiah had stopped already. It is closing in, Flintwinch. Let her alone. Affery, do you turn against me after these many years? I do, if it's turning against you to hear what I don't know and say what I know. I have broke out now, and I can't go back. I'm determined to do it. I will do it. I will, I will, I will. If that's turning against you, yes, I turn against you, both of you two clever ones. I told Arthur when he first came home to stand up against you. I told him it was no reason, because I was afraid of my life of you, that it should be. All manner of things have been a-going on since then, and I won't be run up by Jeremiah, nor yet I won't be diced and scared, nor made a party to I don't know what, no more. I won't, I won't, I won't. I'll up for Arthur when he has nothing left, and is ill, and in prison, and I can't up for himself. I will, I will, I will, I will. How do you know, you heap of confusion? asked Mrs. Clennam sternly, that in doing what you are doing now you're even serving Arthur. I don't know nothing rightly about anything, said Affery, and if ever you said a true word in your life, it's when you call me a heap of confusion, for you two clever ones have done your most to make me such. You married me whether I liked it or not, and you've led me pretty well ever since, such a life of dreaming and frightening as never was known, and what do you expect me to be but a heap of confusion? You wanted to make me such, and I am such, but I won't submit no longer. No, I won't, I won't, I won't, I won't. She was still beating the air against all comers. 
After gazing at her in silence, Mrs. Clennam turned to Rigaud. You see and hear this foolish creature. Do you object to such a piece of distraction remaining where she is? I, madame, he replied. Do I? That's a question for you. I do not, she said gloomily. There is little left to choose now. Flintwinch, it is closing in. Mr. Flintwinch replied by directing a look of red vengeance at his wife, and then, as if to pinion himself from falling upon her, screwed his crossed arms into the breast of his waistcoat, and with his chin very near one of his elbows, stood in a corner, watching Rigaud in the oddest attitude. Rigaud, for his part, arose from his chair, and seated himself on the table with his legs dangling. In this easy attitude he met Mrs. Clennam's set face, with his moustache going up and his nose coming down. Madame, I am a gentleman. Of whom, she interrupted in her steady tones, I have heard disparagement in connection with a French jail and an accusation of murder. He kissed his hand to her with his exaggerated gallantry. Perfectly, exactly. Of a lady, too. What absurdity! How incredible! I had the honour of making a great success then. I hope to have the honour of making a great success now. I kiss your hands, madame. I am a gentleman. I was going to observe who, when he says, I will definitely finish this or that affair at the present sitting, does definitely finish it. I announce to you that we are arrived at our last sitting on our little business. You do me the favour to follow and to comprehend? She kept her eyes fixed upon him with a frown. Yes. Further, I am a gentleman to whom mere mercenary trade bargains are unknown, but to whom money is always acceptable as the means of pursuing his pleasures. You do me the favour to follow and to comprehend? Scarcely necessary to ask, one would say, yes. Further, I am a gentleman of the softest and sweetest disposition, but who, if trifled with, becomes enraged. Noble natures under such circumstances become enraged. I possess a noble nature. When the line is awakened, that is to say, when I enrage, the satisfaction of my animosity is as acceptable to me as money. You always do me the favour to follow and to comprehend? Yes, she answered, somewhat louder than before. Do not let me derange you. Pray be tranquil. I have said we are now arrived at our last sitting. Allow me to recall the two sittings we have held. It is not necessary. Death, madame, he burst out. It's my fancy. Besides, it clears the way. The first sitting was limited. I had the honour of making your acquaintance, of presenting my letter. I am a knight of industry, at your service, madame, but my polished manners had won me so much of success as a master of languages, among your compatriots, who are as stiff as their own starches to one another, but are ready to relax to a foreign gentleman of polished manners, and of observing one or two little things. He glanced around the room and smiled. About this honourable house, to know which was necessary to assure me, and to convince me that I had the distinguished pleasure of making the acquaintance of the lady I sought, I achieved this. I gave my word of honour to our dear Flintwinch that I would return. I gracefully departed. 
her face neither acquiesced nor demurred. The same when he paused, and when he spoke, it as yet showed him always the one attentive frown, and the dark revelation before mentioned of her being nerved for the occasion. I say gracefully departed, because it was graceful to retire without alarming a lady. To be morally graceful not less than physically is a part of the character of Rigaud Blandois. It was also politic, as leaving you with something overhanging you to expect me again with a little anxiety on a day not named. But your slave is politic. By heaven, madame, politic. Let us return. On the day not named, I have again the honour to render myself at your house. I intimate that I have something to sell which, if not bought, will compromise madame whom I highly esteem. I explain myself generally. I demand, I think, it was a thousand pounds. Will you correct me? Thus forced to speak, she replied with constraint. You demanded as much as a thousand pounds. I demand at present, too. Such are the evils of delay. But to return once more, we are not accordant. We differ on that occasion. I am playful. Playfulness is a part of my amiable character. Playfully, I become as one slain and hidden, for it may alone be worth half the sum to madame to be freed from the suspicions that my droll idea awakens. Accident and spies intermix themselves against my playfulness and spoil the fruit, perhaps, who knows, only you and Flintwinch, when it is just ripe. Thus, madame, I am here for the last time. Listen, definitely the last. As he struck his straggling boot heels against the flap of the table, meeting her frown with an insolent gaze, he began to change his tone for a fierce one. Bah! Stop an instant! Let us advance by steps. Here is my hotel note to be paid according to contract. Five minutes hence we may be at dagger's points. I'll not leave it till then, or you'll cheat me. Pay it. Count me the money. Take it from his hand and pay it, Flintwinch, said Mrs. Clennam. He spurted it into Mr. Flintwinch's face when the old man advanced to take it, and held forth his hand, repeating noisily, Paid! Count it out! Good money! Jeremiah picked the bill up, looked at the total with a bloodshot eye, took a small canvas back from his pocket, and told the amount into his hand. Regorching the money, weighed it in his hand, threw it up a little way and caught it, chinked it again. The sound of it to the bold Rigaud Blandois like the taste of fresh mate to the tiger. Say then, madame, how much? He turned upon her suddenly with a menacing gesture of the weighted hand that clenched the money, as if he were going to strike her with it. I tell you again, as I told you before, that we are not rich here, as you suppose us to be, and that your demand is excessive. I have not the present means of complying with such a demand, if I had ever so great an inclination. If, cried Rigaud, hear this lady with her if, will you say that you have not the inclination? I will say what presents itself to me, and not what presents itself to you. Say it then, as to the inclination, quick, come to the inclination, and I know what to do. She was no quicker, and no slower in her reply. It would seem that you have obtained possession of a paper, or of papers, which I assuredly have the inclination to recover. Rigaud, with a loud laugh, drummed his heels against the table, and chinked his money. I think so. 
I believe you there. The paper might be worth to me a sum of money. I cannot say how much or how little. What the devil? he asked savagely. Not after a week's grace to consider? No, I will not out of my scanty means, for I tell you again, we are poor here and not rich. I will not offer any price for a power that I do not know the worst and the fullest extent of. This is the third time of your hinting and threatening. You must speak explicitly, or you may go where you will, and do what you will. It is better to be torn to pieces at a spring than to be a mouse at the caprice of such a cat. He looked at her so hard with those eyes too near together, that the sinister sight of each, crossing that of the other, seemed to make the bridge of this hooked nose crooked. After a long survey, he said, with a further setting off of his infernal smile, You are a bold woman. I am a resolved woman. You always were. What? She always was. Is it not so, my little Flintwinch? Flintwinch, say nothing to him. It is for him to say, here and now, all he can, or to go hence and do all he can. You know this to be our determination. Leave him to his action on it. She did not shrink under his evil leer or avoid it. He turned it upon her again, but she remained steady at the point to which she had fixed herself. He got off the table, placed a chair near the sofa, sat down in it, and leaned an arm upon the sofa close to her own, which he touched with his hand. Her face was ever frowning, attentive, and settled. It is your pleasure, then, madame, that I shall relate a morsel of family history in this little family society, said Rigaud, with a warning play of his lithe fingers on her arm. I am something of a doctor. Let me touch your pulse. She suffered him to take her wrist in his hand. Holding it, he proceeded to say, A history of a strange marriage, and a strange mother, and a revenge, and a suppression. Ay, 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 this pulse is beating curiously. It appears to me that it doubles while I touch it. Are these the usual changes of your malady, madame? There was a struggle in her maimed arm as she twisted it away, but there was none in her face. On his face there was his own smile. I have lived an adventurous life. I am an adventurous character. I have known many adventurers, interesting spirits, amiable society. To one of them I owe my knowledge and my proofs. I repeat it, estimable lady, proofs of the ravishing little family history I go to commence. You will be charmed with it. But, bah, I forget. One should name a history. Shall I name it the history of a house? But, bah, again, there are so many houses. Shall I name it the history of this house? Leaning over the sofa, poised on two legs of his chair and his left elbow, that hand often tapping her arm to beat his words home, his legs crossed, his right hand sometimes arranging his hair, sometimes smoothing his moustache, sometimes striking his nose, always threatening her whatever it did. Cause, insolent, rapacious, cruel, and powerful, he pursued his narrative at his ease. In fin, then, I name it the history of this house. I commence it. There live here, let us suppose, an uncle and nephew. The uncle, 
a rigid old gentleman of strong force of character, the nephew habitually timid, repressed, and under constraint. Mistress Affery, fixedly attentive in the window seat, biting the rolled-up end of her apron, and trembling from head to foot, here cried out, "'Jeremiah, keep off from me! I've heard in my dreams of Arthur's father and his uncle. He's talking of them. It was before my time here, but I've heard in my dreams that Arthur's father was a poor, irresolute, frightened chap, who had had everything but his own life scared out of him when he was young, and that he had no voice in the choice of his wife even, but his uncle chose her. There she sits. I heard it in my dreams, and you said it to her own self. As Mr. Flintwin shook his fist at her, and as Mrs. Clennam gazed upon her, Rigor kissed his hand to her. Perfectly right, dear Madame Flintwinch, you have a genius for dreaming. I don't want none of your praises, returned Affery. I don't want to have nothing at all to say to you, but Jeremiah said they was dreams, and I'll tell him as such. Here she put her apron in her mouth again, as if she was stopping somebody else's mouth, perhaps Jeremiah's, which was chattering with threats as if he were grimly cold. Our beloved Madame Flintwinch, said Rigaud, developing all of a sudden a fine susceptibility and spirituality, is right to a marvel. Yes, so runs the history. Monsieur the uncle commands the nephew to marry. Monsieur says to him in effect, My nephew, I introduce to you a lady of strong force of character like myself, a resolved lady, a stern lady, a lady who has a will that can break the weak to powder. A lady without pity, without love, implacable, revengeful, cold as the stone, but raging as the fire. Ah, what fortitude! Ah, what superiority of intellectual strength! Truly a proud and noble character that I describe in the supposed words of Monsieur the Uncle. Ha, ha, ha! Death of my soul! I love the sweet lady! Mrs. Clennam's face had changed. There was a remarkable darkness of color on it and the brow was more contracted. Madame, madame, said Rigaud, tapping her on the arm, as if his cruel hand was sounding a musical instrument. I perceive I interest you. I perceive I awaken your sympathy. Let us go on. The drooping nose and the ascending moustache had, however, to be hidden for a moment with the white hand before he could go on. He enjoyed the effect he made so much. The nephew, being, as the lucid Madame Flintwinch has remarked, a poor devil who has had everything but his orphan life frightened and famished out of him, the nephew abases his head and makes response, My uncle, it is to you to command, do as you will. Monsieur the uncle does as he will. It is what he always does. The auspicious nuptials take place. The newly married come home to this charming mansion. The ladies received, let us suppose, by Flintwinch. Hey, old intriguer! Jeremiah, with his eyes upon his mistress, made no reply. Rigaud looked from one to the other, struck his ugly nose, and made a clucking with his tongue. Soon the lady makes a singular and exciting discovery. Thereupon, full of anger, full of jealousy, full of vengeance, she forms, see you, madame, a scheme of retribution, the weight of which she ingeniously forces her crushed husband to bear himself, as well as execute upon her enemy. What superior intelligence! Keep off, Jeremiah! cried the palpitating Affery, taking her apron from her mouth again. 
but it was one of my dreams that you told her, when you quarrelled with her one winter evening at dusk. There she sits and you're looking at her, that she oughtn't have let Arthur when he come home suspect his father only, that she had always had the strength and the power, and that she ought to have stood up more to Arthur for his father. It was in the same dream where you said to her that she was not, not something, but I don't know what, for she burst out tremendous and stopped you. You know the dream as well as I do. When you come downstairs into the kitchen with the candle in your hand, and hitched my apron off my head, when you told me I had been dreaming, when you wouldn't believe the noises. After this explosion, Afery put her apron into her mouth again, always keeping her hand on the window-sill and her knee on the window-seat, ready to cry out or jump out if her lord and master approached. Rigor had not lost a word of this. Ha-ha! he cried, lifting his eyebrows, folding his arms and leaning back in his chair. Assuredly, Madame Flintwich is an oracle. How shall we interpret the oracle, you and I, and the old intriguer? He said that you were not, and you burst out and stopped him. What was it you were not? What is it you are not? Say then, Madame. Under this ferocious banter, she sat breathing harder, and her mouth was disturbed. Her lips quivered and opened, in spite of her utmost efforts to keep them still. Come then, madame, speak then. Our old intriguer said that you were not, and you stopped him. He was going to say that you were not what? I know already, but I want a little confidence from you. How, then, you are not what? She tried again to repress herself, but broke out vehemently. Not Arthur's mother! Good, said Rigaud. You are amenable with the set expression of her face all torn away by the explosion of her passion, and with a bursting from every rent feature of the smouldering fire so long pent up, she cried out, I will tell it myself, I will not hear it from your lips, and with the taint of your wickedness upon it. Since it must be seen, I will have it seen by the light I stood in, not another word. Hear me, unless you are a more obstinate and more persisting woman than even I know you to be. Mr. Flintwinch interposed. You had better leave Mr. Rigaud, Mr. Blandois, Mr. Belzebub, to tell it in his own way. What does it signify when he knows all about it? He does not know all about it. He knows all he cares about it, Mr. Flintwinch testily urged. He does not know me. What do you suppose he cares for you, you conceited woman? said Mr. Flintwinch. I tell you, Flintwinch, I will speak. I tell you when it has come to this, I will tell it with my own lips, and will express myself throughout it. What? Have I suffered nothing in this room, no deprivation, no imprisonment, that I should condescend at last to contemplate myself in such a glass as that? Can you see him? Can you hear him? If your wife were a hundred times the ingrate that she is, and if I were a thousand times more hopeless than I am of inducing her to be silent if this man is silenced, I would tell it myself before I would bear the torment of the hearing it from him. End of part one of chapter the thirtieth, book the second of Little Dorrit. This recording is in the public domain.